Welcome to the Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I'm Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it, but most of all, share this podcast with a pastor you know might benefit from it. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Welcome to the Fire and Bones podcast. My name is Nathan Loudon, and I'm with my uh, co-host, Michael Cross-White. And today we have a special episode. Uh, we have with us uh, a pastor, preacher, teacher uh, from the UK, uh, Mark. Mark, do you say your name, Maynell? Um, it rhymes with kennel or fennel or Reynolds, okay. so Menel. Okay. We, we were trying to figure out the East Texas version you know, kind of American version <laughs> of how to say that. Now. So mental. Okay. Uh, so we I have Mark Miller with to us. more or less anything. <laughs> uh, Mark is the author of the darkness scene is my closest friend uh, reflections on life and ministry with depression. And that's the subject we want to discuss uh, today. Mark served for nine years uh, as a pastor at all souls church in London, uh, which is where John Stott pastored for many years. Uh, he also wrote a book on Colossians in the series, God's Word for You, which is a great series, by the way. I don't have that one yet. I'm going to have to uh, to I'm add shocked. that to my collection. <laughs> uh, you host a podcast for the legacy uh, of John Stott, uh, which I listened to your recent or one of your episodes with Russell Moore, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh-huh, is, yeah. uh, which is interesting uh, to us. Uh, you're currently working at the Langham Pre- Preaching Partnership, serving as director over uh, the European and Caribbean regions. Anything else about you? What are you, what are you up to these days? How, th- how are things going? Um, well, I, I'm married to Rachel. We've got two grown-up kids. Um, basically, in terms of activity, it's been staring in front of a screen for the last 15 months, like the rest of the world, <laughs> um, and trying to sort of keep our ministry around uh, Europe and the Caribbean going by Zoom. Uh, we're just about managing, but it's been a struggle. Yeah, and your role right now, what does your role really entail most days right now? So the key thing is uh, we, we try to stimulate indigenously-led preaching movements in, in all our countries. So the idea is that it's sustainable because people who are from that culture and, and uh, country own it and, mm-hmm. and make it happen. It's about grassroots training. So trying to find new ways of training the next generation to teach and handle the Bible well. Yeah, man, praise God. What a what a what a worthy a worthy thing and uh, we pray it continues to be fruitful. Thank You've you. written this book when darkness seems my closest friend on the subject of we're going to use the word depression until you give us a, a better word this morning. Uh you are you're not writing an academic book at the idea of depression. You've written a book from the experience of depression. You said in your appendix that because of the nature of the book that you are you fear the response to it, um, and I can understand why, having having read it and having experienced some of those things. Uh, I will say too, I was looking through Kindle reviews uh, last night, and they're mostly five star reviews. There was one person who said they took the book back, and they never they <laughs> never taken a, <laughs> never taken a book back before. And the funny thing was, the very reason they said they took it back was part of the reason I found the book so helpful. Uh, it used a language like someone has been in it. 
How have you found the, you've been vulnerable and I think helpful. How have you found the response to the book yourself? Um, I think on the whole, um, it's been, it's been very positive. Uh, that review you quoted, I, I cut that out and stuck up my wall because that's, that's, crazy, <laughs> that one. that's so great to hear. <laughs> um, not that I sort of scour reviews left, right and center to, to see, but, right. um, that, that I did, it did amuse me. Um, and if that person is listening, I'd love to hear more. <laughs> um, but, uh, I think I was nervous of becoming the depression guy mm. and becoming just sort of uh, stereotyped and typecast, if you like, so that right. um, I'd forever be um, asked to talk about it and so on. And that's not happened. Um, mm. And um, I've today. had a few. Yeah, no, I was just going to say <laughs> I've had a few <laughs> opportunities to to, yeah. to talk. And I think the kind of line I've drawn is to say, um there are specific issues related to being in ministry and mm. not many people have tackled it. I mean, there, there's just a plethora of books on mental illness and that's good, but, you know, I, it's a crowded marketplace, but there's not that so much for people in ministry. So I think the line I've drawn is that I will try and support and talk about it when it, it pertains to that. So that's, this felt falls well within that. That's great. Thanks. So I wanted to ask a couple of questions here in relation to that, because there were, you know, I'm both Nathan and I are pastors, uh, he in Texas mm-hmm. and me in Alabama. And, and obviously one of the reasons that we, we talk all the time. And one of the biggest things that we wanted to do in this podcast was really reach out to pastors who may not really have that kind of relationship with somebody else that they can, they can talk with. And one of the things that I found most helpful about your book is even I've struggled with depression in coming here and beginning a pastorate is I, I felt like such a hypocrite on Sunday, I'm getting up and I'm, I'm preaching in front of a congregation and I'm exhorting them in many cases. And yet at home, I am struggling with this, just as you call it. And as, as it's been termed so often uh, by Churchill and, and others, the black dog, that kind of just feels like it's following me around. And, and there's this excerpt in your book where, where you say, uh, one moment sums it up. I was alone in the house early one evening. For whatever reason, I decided to have a shower. Sudden waves of sorrow, fear, and even anger overwhelmed me. They begin without the slightest warning. This time I wasn't just weeping, but convulsed by tears, crying out to family, to friends, to God. Of course, nobody could hear me. And nor, it seemed, could God. I was pounding the bathroom walls with my fists and crying out for God to do something, anything. And then I just slumped in the shower, exhausted and depleted. And I, when I read that, I, it, it, it resonated so deeply with me because I've, I've been there. And yet at the same time, it, it brings up in the, in the mind of a minister this, uh, this feeling that those two thoughts preaching on Sunday morning and that feeling in the shower are mutually exclusive. They can't be in the same person. And yet in this book, you're seeming to connect them together. Is that, was that a goal? And, and how, um, how, how do you, you know, how do you think that's resonating with people? I guess? Um, well, for starters, I'm sorry that you do resonate with it. I mean, yeah. you, you don't wish this on your worst enemy, quite frankly, um, I, I, 
I think it's precisely that kind of um, sort of psychological splits almost, um, or, or I suppose you might even call it a kind of schizophrenia. I think, um, I don't use that in the, in the medical technical sense, but I think the crucial thing is, first of all, you've got to recognize this reality and that's half the battle. I think hypocrisy is where people are sort of blithely going on um, without the slightest degree of self-awareness um, or uh, if they do have self-awareness, there's a deliberate pretense from everybody in the world and even attempted before God so that you really are living in two different worlds. And I think the crucial thing is, and I suppose I was intentional about this, is to say, well, we, the, the great thing is that we can be completely honest and broken before God. And gradually, I think it's just the nature of discipleship. Maybe it's a bit more extreme uh, and sort of pushed out in, in its extremities in ministry because you are so public and upfront about it. Um, and you're having to lead others. But I think it is the nature of the Christian life. And maybe part of the, some of the time is that we just have a wrong view of what it means to be in Christ, to have his spirit, to walk with him. In the, and we somehow assume that there's a kind of, I think I talk about this, a kind of prosperity gospel that actually, mm. okay, I don't believe I'm going to live in a mansion in LA, but um, I've got God with me, and so life should be pretty much okay. I'm not expecting riches, but it should be okay. And that's just not true. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So, Mark, you you talked about the importance of recognizing uh, this. And I want, I want to ask you to touch on that more, because in, in the trailer for your book, you your voiceover is how much you hate the word depression you hate the narrowness of the scope the category that it puts you in and thankfully so your book is not a um a technical diagnostic statistic manual version of dealing with this subject it's a pastoral you you use the phrase helping us find verbal footholds so you're talking about the cave and, and the volcano and, and these things and uh language that seems maybe obscure and obscure and abstract uh, from outside looking in. So how, how do you recognize the difference between or discern the difference between I'm tired, it's been a long week, I'm kind of in a bad mood, and you ought to be really concerned and pay, pay special attention to your own soul uh, because of what you're going through. How do you, how do you discern that? What language do you use and how do you discern that? Um, that, that's an important question. And as you say, this isn't technical and I'm not um, an expert at diagnostician. Right. Um, I think that one of the crucial words is chronic. So what we're talking about is mm. something that just doesn't go away. And, you know, you can have maybe a weekend off or a few days away and, um, you know, that might sort of, realign you a little bit in the normal run of things or just a few more nights sleep or, or whatever it is no but this is something that those little stop gaps and 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 sort of helps really don't dent at all and we're talking about something that is an ongoing habitual sense and you have a kind of internal dialogue 
which is dominated by negativity and um, well, ultimately, the worst extreme of it is is um, ideation of suicidal thoughts, but it's sort of harm and doom, really. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that kind of thing really is not normal, and that can and should be helped. Um, the assumption is you can't find help for that kind of thing. It's just because it's just in your head. Uh, but there really is help. Um, that's different from oh, I preached a rubbish sermon last week and I, I don't know why I'm in this job and um, I'm just spending all my life on Zoom. You know, that's that's life and stress and everything else. This is different. Yeah. What what steps would you take? You know, there's a pastor listening to us, to yourself. If you could go back, would you do things differently yourself? What what steps would you take once you begin to realize I'm I'm in the volcano? Uh, as you referred to it in your book, I'm in that state where I'm just in a continual low and I can't get out and take a deeper breath and, and flourish. What, what steps do you take once you begin to have some self-realization that that's where you are? Yeah. Um, we hear a lot, don't we, about, um, and particularly in the light of some of the the crises that have hit us on both sides of the Atlantic, you know, with uh, leaders um, who are sort of abusive and all the rest. Um, And we talk about the need for accountability uh, and that's absolutely right. But I sometimes think that we, we restrict that word to something that's almost, um, I I don't know, uh, about being part of a system and, and answerable and all of that. Whereas actually I think maybe a better way of approaching it is to think about having people with whom we're known and who are not surprised by the shocking things that we think because we know themselves that they're not shocked by our sin and so we can be honest they're not shocked by the things that discourage us um, and so we can share them because they've been there before and I think even for the person and I've got many friends in ministry you knew I work with around particularly Central Europe. I mean, being an evangelical pastor in Eastern and Central Europe, man, that is lonely. Um, But even if you're isolated on your own, through technology and stuff, we can have close friends like you two, actually, um, a long distance apart, um, where we are known. And that's crucial. And so if you haven't got that, then you, you bust a gut to find a way of getting that, whether it's a spiritual director or a prayer partner or whatever. That's the key place to start. Um, and, and then beginning to share um, with that person and, and maybe starting to broaden it out so that you've got somebody who's just keeping an eye to be able to say, hang on, what you said then was a little bit more serious than what you said a month ago. This, this sounds like it's... It's getting a grip in a different way or whatever, because we can't judge it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. When, when Mark, would you go beyond? So a a tendency or there's an opportunity to go for a long season in, in, in ministry. And even if you have someone that you're, uh, that is a confidant, a friend, a, a shoulder to shoulder partner through this, is there a time when you need to tell your church as a pastor, I'm going through this 
I need an extended amount of time or your elders. Is there, is there freedom to, to do that for pastors? When, when would you know that might be? And how, how could you, how could you begin to comprehend telling a church I'm in a certain state, I need some, some help and some time, whatever. It's not a decision that one can necessarily come to alone and nor necessarily should one. Yeah. And you certainly don't sort of launch it on a fellowship, um, sort of cold as it were. So you mentioned elders or, or one or two in leadership around you or maybe colleagues on a staff team, if there is one. Um, you know, you need a circle of people to help you figure that out. Um, and certainly whoever your um, trusted prayer partners or cohorts around the place, um, that's something one would sort of discuss. I mean, that it's a really tricky one and it's a, I guess it's, a, it's an art, not a science. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, um, let's sort of backtrack a little bit and think about the, 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 the nature and quality of the kind of fellowship we seek as pastors to generate not that we can bring it about but that we want to be catalysts for i think i i again and again have come back to dietrich bonhoeffer's book live together um very short so less than 100 pages he goes a bit nuts about sort of germanic lutheran hymn singing at one point but we'll forgive him that (laughs) because he was having a stressful time um and it was the 1930s and they were illegal um (laughs) he he talks about what church should really be like and he has this amazing section about you know the shock of discovering that there's a sinner in the midst um and how appalling that is and you know how quickly we must sort of give them the boot out of the fellowship because they're going to ruin it. And of course, how absurd that is, because we know full well that all of us bring our sin to the fellowship. It's one of the things we give. (laughs) Um, And and so we just got to get real. And so that means how we deal with another sin in the fellowship usually has to change quite radically because we're so judgmental. And that's one of the reasons why people hide behind a mask. It's because it's too dangerous. And that includes the pastor. And, you know, if you're alone and there's this sort of uh, culture across the whole church of hiding behind this facade of righteous perfection, then that's going to be practically impossible even for the pastor to to be open about that brokenness. So that's going to profoundly inform the decision. But I'll I'll tell you one thing that I did notice. Um, So... After a few years being at All Souls, city centre church, right in the middle of London, next to the BBC, you never know who's going to walk in. Um, and and so, you know, it, it always felt like a kind of risky pulpit in the sense that, you know, if, mm. if the BBC next door wanted to create a media storm about evangelicalism, they just had to come next door as a double. Um, and, you know, we were, we were dead ducks. Yeah. We were very conscious of that. Um, but um, it became clear that I, I was talking to individuals. I hadn't talked much about my depression for a number of years. We moved there in uh, 2005. 
So this was 2012, and that was a big year. We had the London Olympics. We had all kinds of things. It was it was an amazing year, um, and we were beginning to do different topics at our services and being quite creative around them, doing different things, interviews, videos, that kind of stuff. And it was exciting. And so we decided that you know the time had come to do one on mental illness, and I was going to preach about it. Um, and we had one or two others involved, including uh, a medical professional. Um, and a senior member of the congregation who'd been there since the 70s. He led the service. Um, he's battled with stuff himself. Uh, Professor John Wyatt, amazing guy. Um, and it, it all came as a, a remarkable thing together. It was a real team effort. Um, and I kind of hoped naively that this would sort of, you know, break the dam. And at last, we were going to begin to sort of get away from mm. the urban sort of rat race, middle class facade type thing of a, a sort of city centre church. Um, and what happened was a few people individually were helped and began to say, oh, I can talk about my thing now. And that was good. But it didn't create a sea change. And it, I think what I realised is that one, I was not the senior pastor. It had to come from that, I was the sort of number two or three or whatever. Um, but that it has to be part of a sort of wider sense of just openness and vulnerability and transparency, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do anyway, let alone in a, in a gathered network church. I think in a local, smaller, real sort of community church, I think it, it can happen uh, and, and so on. But uh, it, it it took time, and I was I was quite sort of gutted, really, because I was hoping mm. this was it was you know it was a big gulp to do, and then it didn't quite really change anything. But yeah. it was a start, and I think yeah. you you had to do it as part of something bigger. Anyway, it's a long answer, um, but hopefully, no, that's really that's really helpful because I think I think pastors tend to want a yes or a no. Uh, yes, it's okay. Mm. Be public. Talk about it it's really helpful or no, be quiet. Don't. And you're saying we've got to use discernment. It reminds me of Jonathan mm -hmm. Lehman talking about church discipline. Uh, if you show up on day one, having discovered church discipline and your church isn't ready to do that, you can't just practice that next week. Uh, you will probably get fired. Well, you'll <laughs> and, be the one disciplined, I think. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so if your, if your church isn't there, if there's not some, familiarity with this for the pastor in, or any pastor or the pastor to be the one who is vulnerable seen as fragile the church doesn't have a category for strength and weakness at the same time and it can be delusioning to a congregation mm -hmm. at the same time i hear you saying if you kind of go on and on for years it, it can become detrimental to you and the, the church mm -hmm. if that doesn't mm -hmm. get addressed in, in some way on on some level uh, and I, it sounds, it is risky because as soon as you tell a staff person, I tell people in our church all the time, everyone has two best friends and you're only one of them. And they have another best friend that they tell everything to. And, and that's okay. That's not always gossip. Uh, that's yeah. how friendship works. Someone is going to tell their other best friend that the pastor is having a hard time because they need someone to talk to about the fact that their pastor is having a hard time <laughs> and they need a friend. Um and so it might not be gossip, but once it's out, it's you, it, you've let the stallion out of the cage and or out of the fence. And now you have to deal with it. 
Um, it's a hard decision. It is, but I suppose it what what we're talking about here is is not in a vacuum, and mm -hmm. so you are. If if grace truly is to be the hallmark and the foundation and the backbone and everything else of the congregation, then it's going to be incremental with lots of different ways of, of expressing it. So how we deal with the broken, how we deal with the guilty. I mean, I think, you know, guilt and feelings of guilt and shame are all, all wrapped up in this and some, some are warranted and some are not warranted. But, you know, how as a congregation and how we teach about and treat people who are, are guilty for warranted reasons because they objectively are, that's, as, that's gonna inform how this kind of thing is dealt with as much as anything else. Um, yeah. are, are we gospel shaped in that sense? Yeah. So in that, I wanna ask that question, I wanna turn it a little bit from dealing with it personally as a pastor in relation to your church. What can a pastor do, uh, or, or anyone for that matter, um, but especially a pastor, what can a pastor do to create that culture where he himself would feel comfortable uh, and where our members would feel comfortable uh, and, and even, not, let me rephrase that, not just comfortable, but encouraged, welcomed, and confident that to share this struggle or, or any struggle for that matter, what, what do pastors do to help create that uh, in, in a church setting with, without just doing it themselves uh, publicly and burying their soul before the church? How do you, how would you say you go about creating a culture like that? Well, we have to start with ourselves in terms of how we um, relate to other people. And so, um, we must uh, be open about our um, limitations and the fact that we don't know everything. Um, I think a very revealing um, little sort of litmus test, if, if you like, with, with somebody is, is to ask a leader when, um, when they last changed their minds about something and whether it's theological or otherwise, because actually, there's a sense in which we should keep on engaging and wrestling with things throughout our lives. And that should surely entail, as our understanding of, of a topic develops, changing our minds on something. Um, whereas somehow I think there's a kind of assumption that if you're a strong leader, then you've got to get it sorted from um, the get-go. Your first hundred days are incredible and then the next thousand are even better and, and so on and so forth. It's absolute nonsense. I don't find that in the Bible right. at all. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, it's being willing to, um, to, to be teachable yourself um, and, and to, to willing to apologize. In fact, one of the, the best things I was ever, um, was ever passed on to me as a young father, and now my kids are in their 20s, was never lose sight of the need to apologize to your children not not in a sort of british embarrassed we say sorry for everything you know sorry when you've hit your head on the door or something um but but sorry when you've got it wrong as a parent right right um, because and i say the same as a pastor that kind of thing just says hey the pastor's not infallible 
so that um, hmm. when something like this rears its head, rears its head, it's like, oh well, okay, well this is part of his not infallibleness. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. That that's really freeing and uh, yeah, helpful. Absolutely, uh, really helpful. Um, is is there any speaking to church members who are maybe suspecting? My pastor seems down. He preaches really good sermons, and he's alive in the pulpit, but he just seems tired all the time, and he's, he seems low. Should is there, is there any verbal footholds, if you will, for church members to kind of go, I'm concerned for my pastor? Well, one's got to be aware that sometimes um, – I mean, temperament plays a big deal, doesn't it, in this? So. Mm-hmm. By nature, I'm an introvert, but I can be quite extrovert in the pulpit. And then at mm-hmm. the end of a sermon, um, I'm just flaked out, especially yeah. if one at All Souls, we preach the same sermon twice in the mornings. By mm-hmm. lunchtime, I just need to be peeled off the floor. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I'm not going to have a lot of energy to, um, you know, to be sort of up there and going for it. And, and that's just normal. Um, and it's just about how you recuperate. But I guess it's about, um, it's not just about whether or not the pastor expresses the kind of exuberance you expect of a pastor, and that, that, that entails all kinds of questions, but whether this yeah. guy that you know well mm-hmm. seems on a different level. It's, it's to mm. do with just, just relationally knowing somebody quite well, rather than, oh, he doesn't yeah. smile as much as I, the old pastor. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and COVID has been at least for me, I think there's just been a, a constant push, a heaviness on what, on everything that used to be a little bit lighter and easier, normal rhythms. So I wouldn't, I would not be surprised if my church said, you look exhausted. And I say, yeah, I am. (laughs) But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, I've got the black dog following me around. Um, A couple of rapid fire questions, and I'm going to let Michael take it a little bit of a different direction. Um, just in, in quick answers, should, if I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm dealing with, I'm struggling with this, um, when do I know I should just kind of quit preaching and leading through this and I should take a step back and, and take a rest from ministry or maybe even find a new vocation? Hmm. Um, and I know that's a, a I, bit of a nuanced question as well. There's not a uh, a, a necessary hard line, but how would you help pastors think through that? Um, I think, it, let's say you've got your little group of elders who you know well and you trust each other. That's crucial, mm-hmm. um, and I know that's that's not a given because sometimes that that can go wrong. But um, that that's something you talk about. And recognizing that if people go on sabbatical because of something like this, it is so common for people to end up not coming back at the end of the sabbatical, or if they do, only for a short time. So that's all part of the package, and that may be right. Um, um, I do not think that that having a sort of um, a tendency or, or perhaps a vulnerability towards depression or mental illness is a prevention from ministry. It just may mean that your ministry is slightly different. So mine is no longer local church, and I think there are reasons for that. Um, there's the relentlessness of it and the fact you can't escape from it. So it's horses for courses, it really is, and there are so many different ways to do ministry. 
Um, but I think it's got to be a plural decision. You can't work that out on your own. And you need, you know, a spouse, your children, if they're old enough, um, family, those who know you well. Um, it may well be that, yes, it is time to sort of call it a day. Or it may just be you need to get out of there for six months or a year. And yeah. then by the time you've, you've done that, you think, OK, I'm ready for the next thing. Yeah, I re- I was supposed to take sabbatical last year for six weeks. Uh, COVID changed that for us. And my oh, elders share. I know my <laughs> elders share with me one of the things they said was, uh, when pastors have taken sabbatical at this church in the past, they don't come back, or they they kind of so gain common. a vision to be moved along down the road. And they weren't necessarily afraid of that. I think they would even be supportive, uh, but they kind of recognized, uh, oh no, <laughs> we don't we don't know if this is a, is a good thing. Um, just to say, just to add, answer really quickly for pastors who are listening, is depression necessarily disqualifying of a pastor? Does it does it mean he shouldn't be in that role? No, uh, there'd be a lot of people who hadn't contributed to the Bible if that was true. Hmm, uh, that's a great answer. Great answer. I, um, Mark, I remember uh, very vividly being in uh, in a. A bedroom with my wife and laying there in the dark. And I remember um, finally basically just breaking down and telling her what was going on inside. And it, there was so much that I didn't have uh, the vocabulary for. I didn't know how to describe. And I, I found over the next, you know, however long, six months or so, as we her and I, you know, began talking through this more frequently that there were some times where uh, she, it didn't seem could really wrap her mind around what was going on. So often in the, in the book, you describe um, friends listening, you, you obviously relate some of them to Job's friends and then, um, and then some of the advice that they give. Mentioning no names. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but some of the advice that they give being like a snap out of it, or, you know, just, you've got the case of the mopes, let's, let's move on. You know, those people didn't mean that, or that's not how they intended that or whatever. Is it, is it too much to expect our friends and loved ones to really understand and resonate what we're with what we're going through. Um, I wrote this in the beginning um, for myself because um, I find that my own thinking clarifies as I have to put it on paper or screen. Um, and I can, it helps me to articulate something. So the moment I, I'm having to form a paragraph, um, things become a bit more manageable. That's just me. I mean, people, people are different. Um, and so I was writing it for myself, but I was also writing it with the encouragement of um, my psychologist to try and give a handle for my wife, Rachel, and... The, the, the kids, I was very worried about the effect it was having on the kids. Um, we came back from Africa in 2005. Um, my son was nearly eight and my daughter was four. So um, they were seeing me in a really bad place and 
sadly, I would lash out at them. Mm. Um, again, in my almost sort of <sighs> rage at it. And, um, and so inevitably, um, and I don't, it, you know, there's no excuse and it's, it's not something particularly proud about, obviously, but those closest end up those being most hurt because you're just in firing range. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, you know, I was terrified of the, the sort of decades of therapy that they were both going to have as a result of their father mm. just going eight. Um, <laughs> um, we kind of joke about it now, but this isn't sort of nervous laughter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the I, I wanted to find a way of just saying, okay, look, I, it's not about you. Um, it's really not about you because this predates you, predates my marriage, it predates their birth. Um, so what is it then, if it's not those things? Um, so um, I was trying to sort of get it down. And and Rachel, um, bless her, you know, she's, well, because of her side of the family, my kids, when we lived in Africa, were fifth generation kids. Um, you know, sort of hardy, yeah. toughened over sort of generations. My family is not like that. Um, and, um, and so they just get on with stuff. And, you know, it's almost sort of old school. Not in an unhealthy way necessarily, it's just the way they're wired. And so, you know, she didn't really relate to it. And I just, and that was really difficult. It was difficult for her. It was very difficult for me. Um, so that's when I was cottoning on to the idea of different metaphors and images. And I get that. Um, I was stimulated to do that um, from, well, partly from the Bible, really, just saying the Psalms are full of all these metaphors. And actually, I can relate to some of them. And so that's what I try to do in the book is say, here are some metaphors. You, you, some may be completely alien. Well, that's fine. But some may be just something you, you might not relate to, but you can say, oh, I kind of get what that's that's about. Um, and then that gives you something you can talk about. So, or you can have a shorthand and say, Ola is, is so one of, as you mentioned, one of the big metaphors in the book is the cave. So, so it might be, well, there's, you know, just the question, is today a bit of a cave day? And that, in a way, is all you need. Um, it shows a sensitivity, even if you cannot relate to it at all. Um, and that, that's that's what you're trying to do. So you're you're stuck in this sort of pit, really, but you're trying to find ways that those outside it can connect. Um, yeah. In that same vein, you several times, and, and I found this to be true of my own experience as well, that the term depression seems so inadequate because it seemed like to people that had never experienced this before, which was me, you know, prior to coming here, but um, (laughs) to those that had never experienced this before, that sounds like a case of the mopes or you're really sad today or something like that. And you, you mentioned on several occasions why that, that, that term is just seems so inadequate. Um, What, what is, are there better terms are there better ways of describing it um that maybe people can kind of grab onto it a little bit better it's a real problem i'm not sure that there are necessarily which is why in a way you've got to find your two or three or four images you say right that this is the one that works for me Mm. um and and that those who know and love you um can share that vocabulary um, because one of the weird things about is, 
um, and I say this at one point, um, I can't remember where I first picked this up, but it was in a book which articulated this. And I thought, wow, that's exactly it. Where it's not about feeling low, it's just about an absence of feeling. Mm-hmm. It's just like an entire sort of element of your being is just been erased or um, the batteries are dead. There's just there's just no life there. And um, you you can kind of function. Some people can have sort of high functioning depression or whatever it is. Um, and, and from the outside, it looks completely invisible. Um, mm. But there's just a total deadness. Now, that's really alarming because you you know that's not meant to be that, like that. You read your Bible, you know it's not meant to be like that. You get Christians talking about joy and terrifying words like that. You think, well, what's that? Um, and so um, even, even language of mental illness, I mean, one of the problems, isn't it, isn't I think this is, this is a, a contemporary malaise, really, that for the last, I don't know what, 70 years, since the Second World War, we've become a therapeutic and therapied culture. And so we all instinctively, you know, almost without having to be taught it, we get this from primary school, we know to speak the language of the therapist couch. And we can all appropriate that kind of language without necessarily knowing its significance or seriousness. And we, and it basically gets diluted then, doesn't it? So, um, I, you know, may have come, I mean, this is tangential, but you may have come across, say, Chuck de Groot's book on the narcissistic pastor and where narcissism comes to the church. I think that's a really important book. It's one of the best of its genre. I think it's superb. Um, and he's very careful to define terms of narcissism and, and power abuse and so on. But it's amazing how a word like narcissist, which 50 years ago, just very sort of niche psychologist, psychologist trained, you know, sort of university educated people would use now everybody uses oh you're such a narcissist just because you've done a selfie on instagram or something oh such a narcissist whereas actually it has a much deeper richer and darker meaning mm. and and that's just it's true of depression oh i miss my bus or hey they ran out of toffee lattes at starbucks i'm so depressed well that's not depression <laughs> that's a first world problem <laughs> 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 uh you I, I was just over the chapters throughout your book uh i found you referencing so often various authors works um one that's you know very near and dear to my heart is john bunyan's the pilgrim's progress you mentioned c.s lewis obviously the psalmists play a heavy role in fact the title of the book comes from psalm from the psalms and um and I think in that you um, you kind of kind of present this uh, idea of how, what what pleasure and joy there is in the midst of depression, finding a, a friend in the cave. And it seems that for you, uh, maybe the psalmist, obviously uh, John Bunyan in writing Pilgrim's Progress, and and you know, several of these, these authors, C.S. Lewis at the death of his wife, um, are sort of for you, that, that friend in the cave. And, and I, it made me think that there's probably going to be a pastor out there. Maybe there already has been, or maybe just another Christian 
that is, has picked up your book. And for them, you are that friend in the cave. And so my, my wonder is, um, what would you say to that Christian that is encountering you as their first real friend in the cave and they're, you know, getting this vocabulary for the first time and they're going, oh my goodness, somebody else feels what I'm feeling or has felt what I'm, what I'm feeling. What would you say to them? Um, you're an answer to prayer. Hmm. Um, that's the reason I did it. Um, I, I was, I, I really was so torn about doing, I mean, I, I wanted to write it for myself and just, you know, have it as a PDF. I, what, what was happening is that in ministry in London, I was obviously just through just the, the natural cycle of church life. Um, I was talking to people who had their own challenges and so on, and um, they would open up. And I would say, well, it's interesting you say that. I've just been trying to write some thoughts and I would share half a chapter or something and, and say, look, does this, do you relate to this? If not, don't worry, just bin it, it's fine. Um, and people say, no, I, th this does fit. So if it is a friend to others, I praise God. That's the whole point. Um, if it isn't, well, that's fine. I hope you find some. I think the crucial thing is, in the end, I mean, it, you mentioned Lewis. I mean, he has that wonderful definition of friendship in four loves isn't it that a friend is mm. someone who's when you first meet says what you too i thought i was the only one yeah. and th that's that's the crucial thing and to say look no um you're not the first person on the planet to have this um it's a lot it's, it's that elijah moment isn't it when he's just had enough one king's 19 and now they're trying to kill me too and i'm the only one and nobody's had it as bad as me and i'm miserable and god what are you going to do about it he says well actually i got several hundred other people so don't worry and, and go to bed yeah <laughs> you know so, um uh, yeah. go ahead sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no, no, no. um i uh, i remember in that same conversation with my wife um thinking or and actually saying to her, she, she asked me uh, about um, j just what I was going through. And she said, is it that you're scared of your own thoughts? And for the first time I was able to articulate uh, what I was feeling when I, I said to her, um, it's that the darkness brings me great comfort. And one of the sh shocking, uh, to me, it was shocking in the book is this uh, just really honest um, way of, of writing about suicide. And, you know, for the first time, I remember that suicide made sense to me. I could understand why people would go that route and why that, that level of darkness could bring them such comfort. Um, when you, when you put that down, is that, um, is that something that you were, you know, kind of, scared to sort of put out there for people to read absolutely i mean um I, yes <laughs> i i mean i still i'm still in two minds to whether i should have done or not but it's done mm. and i think it's probably it was probably necessary it's certainly necessary if you know not that i'm 
sort of hanging out all my dirty washing and spilling everything. Um, I've still got some hang-ups I'm not going to tell you about. Um, but uh, I think I felt, no, if, if I'm going to do justice to this, then, then it's got to be there. And I wanted to say, you see, part of it is, is the statistic um, anecdotally that um, somebody who talks about suicidal ideation is 50% less likely to do anything about it if they talk to somebody. And so um, by just saying, putting it on the page, it gives permission for somebody else to talk about it so that they're less likely to do anything, that's gotta be worth it. Um, and there is, no, there is no protection from just being in ministry to, from having those kinds of thoughts. Well, why would there? Why, why would pastors or anybody in any kind of ministry be preserved from the things that any Christian might have? doesn't yeah that's not logical yeah you you say on several occasions uh that how inadequate some sermons are for addressing what people are really going through in the pews with mm. depression and um I, i'm i it made me wonder a couple of different aspects of this it, it first of all is preaching a really a sufficient medium for discussing the, the realities of depression. And then on that, you know, kind of second piggyback on that question is, is there a better way? And I'm asking this really for myself too, because I find my own preaching inadequate in this regard. Um, how do I preach better sermons to those who are going through depression that are helpful and, and actually, you know, encouraging. I am fundamentally committed to the importance of preaching. Um, that's my day job. Mm. Um, and um, I, I love preaching. I love time to prepare and get stuck in. And, you know, there are, I love listening to someone who really gets me deep into the word, but deep into reality. Uh, I think a lot of preaching is an escape from reality, or at least it's an ignoring of reality. So I, I think I've always had this frustration when preaching is unreal. But we've also got to face the reality that a 30 minute or however long monologue once a week is insufficient to helping individuals with the complexity of life. And it always was, um, you know, the greats of the past, they, they invested, you know, the Calvins and the Augustans and everything else, you know, down the ages, invested a huge amount, Chrysostom and all the rest. But they did lots of other things in terms of writing letters, talking, spending times with individuals, being in discussions. Um, and, you know, you think of the people who've most influenced your own life. Um, I'd be amazed if actually it was just from their public ministry. Mm. It's going to be the private, the shared, the intimate, the, the real, the brokenness, the times when actually they're not presented, presentable. Um, it's funny enough, um, just the, the stop podcast that went out today, I was interviewing uh, some dear friends. He's 
from Ecuador. His wife is Canadian. They've been working in Colombia for many years. And um, he was talking about a two-week trip that he and John Stott made to Cuba in the 80s, and he was going as his interpreter. And the second week was set aside for a holiday, and the, just the two of them, and, and Jorge was very nervous about, you know, we're gonna sp- I'm going to spend two weeks with this guy. I love him. I respect him. But, you know, it's going to be weird, just the two of us. <laughs> um, and Don basically just wanted to go bird watching. And Jorge wasn't really into bird watching. So he was thinking, this is going to be awkward. Um, but it was amazing. And um, it's very, very moving hearing him talk about it because um, they they shared a lot. And John really shared his own inner heart and, and suffering and life. And that actually, that is profoundly necessary and important. And if as pastors, we're not doing that, I mean, you know, some of the problems with these these names who've crashed and burned is that they were just there in floodlights and headlights and on the the billboards, but their private and intimate was not shared as part of their ministry. You don't share it with everybody, but there wasn't a consistency. It wasn't... A reality and and that is a big problem um and so it's got to be all part and parcel uh, and that's how people grow isn't it they 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 see us struggle as well uh, one little story uh, and i'll shut up but um i remember my first job in a church curacy ordained job was in sheffield north of england some dear friends uh who joined the church around the same time they were both medical doctors but both, you know, real, very godly and thought through disciples and servants with their medicine and everything else. And they had an amazing open house. People would sort of float in and out all the time. And there was this younger member of the church staff who lived two doors down on the same street. And he was popping around um, one afternoon, I don't know, to get, um, I don't know, some sugar or something like that. And basically, these two, this couple, these friends were having a massive argument in the middle of the day. And this younger staff member said, hey, um, could you just hold it there? I just want to get my wife because we've never seen Christians arguing well. Can we come and watch? (laughs) And it was like, what? And they were thinking, what? We don't want this. But they said, oh, OK. So he went to get his wife and they sat on the sofa and they watched them having an argument. Now, of course, my friends toned it down a lot because it was now on show. But actually, there was something brilliant about that. It's like we're sharing our lives. We're not perfect. We, we mess yeah. up. We have arguments. Yeah. It actually it meant that they had to sort of sort of change gear and argue better as well but that's another story yeah that seems like the kind of the rounded definition of discipleship truly is life on life watching other people come and watch other... me argue yeah 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 exactly <laughs> yeah um, and I, I don't know if it, that's a compelling argument for somebody <laughs> to get involved in discipleship is, is come and, and really watch me. um i you know when it comes to this idea of, of preaching that obviously the title when darkness seems my closest friend comes from the Psalms, um, in our church, you know, we've started doing as of last year, a summer in the Psalms every, every summer. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I did, the idea definitely wasn't original to me, but, uh, but how, how useful do you 
feel as though the Psalms are for the congregation to go through in the sermon, uh, really to preach through, for the pastor to preach through the Psalms and just be real with the language of the authors, because Psalms, I mean, good grief, Psalms is, 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 uh, is really taking the human emotions and just stripping them bare in front of the congregation. And so how, how, talk about that for just a minute, how, how important you feel like that is as a regular diet for the congregation. Well, I think it has to be the case that a reason, one reason why many people in Western churches are so restrained, restricted, no, that's not the word, um, just so limited, so immature um, before God with their emotional and just psychological reality is because they've just been fed a diet of Pauline logic mm -hmm. and Pauline logic is fantastic and it's it is emotional but you know you have to you have to follow the exegetical flow and you've got to do your you know what, what you know your line through Romans and trying to piece it all together and and you know there's a sense in which actually a lot of evangelical preachers love seminary because they're intellectually and bookish uh bookish minded and so they just really go to town when it comes to the epistles um and and, and that appeals to a certain type of mentality and temperament and we steer clear from the psalms for precisely the same reason because it's far too touchy-feely um and I, I i realize i'm saying this as a sort of clenched englishman to sort of really um, sort of opened out Americans who really can in touch with their inner beings. But um, I think, you know, we, we the, the Psalms are a gift from God to tell us how to, to relate to him. I mean, it, it cannot get more explicit. You know, sometimes people say, well, I don't know how to pray. Why not? It's flipping there in 150 chapters. Um, yeah, you get some stuff in Paul, which has a nice logical flow, although sometimes you can't follow his logic. Uh, you need John Stott for that. He's sometimes more clear than, than the apostle. But, um, but the Psalms, they tell you how to do it. And if you're feeling really hacked off with God, tell him. Tell him. And if mm. you think he's nowhere to be seen or heard, tell him. Mm. That's what it's there for. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think your, your book does in a sense, what the Psalms do in an inspired biblical sense, which is give us language that we didn't even know is there to pray things that we, we don't even know how to put into words ourselves. But when we read it, if we will stop and meditate on it and not study the Psalms like the epistles, we will relate and sufferers will find a home uh, in the Psalms and language for those Psalms. Um, I, I just that, that's really helpful, and I, I think how I'm understanding that in terms of preaching, where Michael's first question was, is that if we're not addressing it in preaching ever, we're probably not being faithful to the text, for one, because it is so frequent, especially in the Psalms. Um, but if we are too plastic and surgical in trying to say, hey, this is the idea of depression, and this is how you deal with it, this is the one, two, three steps for curing depression – Rather than the, the psalmist kind of language, which is saying it's it's like this. It's like I've got grit in my teeth and I'm in the hole and God's shooting arrows at me. Well, that leaves room 
for the hearer to go, yeah, that's how I feel too. Or it's not like that, but I think you get me. Uh, and you can't really do much more work than that in the pulpit. Uh, and that that's actually a good thing in the pulpit, that you can't do precise counseling in the pulpit, but you, you're offering some space with biblical hope and language for, for the hearers. Is that fair? So a question on the for us on the just the the the, the narrow understanding of the gospel uh, often and, and this is true especially in on our side of the pond evangelism uh, turns the gospel into uh, a narrow one minute uh, summary of justification for sin which is the gospel is the gospel of Christ crucified for our sins resurrected from the grave our union with him and his death our union with him and his resurrection that we might too walk in life is how does the gospel apply to uh or depression uh or is it kind of limited to this is where your sins are atoned if, if that if the question makes sense without uh sounding like i'm forsaking the gospel is there a gospel mm -hmm. application to depression that you might help us understand well one of the things that i really grappled with and well in some ways discovered for myself for the first time was through trying to figure out this whole business of shame and what shame is and how it relates to guilt um, and how it relates to the gospel and one of the things that i certainly experienced many times having been in churches where you know, just from justification by faith was a sort of central tenet. And as you say, sort of outreach uh, proclamation would have that plum center. I would find just in terms of my experience of that, being told I was forgiven and not having that make the slightest bit of difference to my psychological equilibrium uh it was not impacting me emotionally now of course our emotions are not a kind of barometer for our spiritual health that's one of the big problems so when we're down we assume that means god is down or the gospel's different or whatever it's not a barometer but we mustn't go to the opposite extreme and assume that our emotions have nothing to say and that they're not related to reality and maybe if and, and this is what some you know medics will will say that depression chronic uh sort of experiences of related to depression do suggest that there is something objectively the matter um and so there your feelings are sort of like warning lights on the dashboard and so why was i not engaging at all was it simply just because my inner life was dead or because maybe there was something else that was wrong and this is what i realized is that it was the latter and that when you understand shame as a core element of our problem then you realize that actually being told you're forgiven is not really going to affect that at all so you sum it up like this um, shame, uh, guilt is I did that wrong thing and therefore I am objectively guilty. If the person to whom I did that wrong thing comes back and says, it's OK, you're forgiven. Um, and when it comes to the gospel, vis-a-vis, -vis, therefore God. Great. I am no longer guilty. That's been wiped clean. 
Um, and so I carry on with my day. That's that's lovely. But what shame does is says not that I did that wrong thing, but I'm the kind of guy that does that wrong thing. I get told I'm forgiven. But hey, I'm still the kind of guy that does that wrong thing. This is what I'm like. This is my nature. And so therefore, to be told you're forgiven, it says, well, that's nice. But I'm the kind of guy that does that. So tomorrow I'm going to do it. And I'm going to have to come back. And how many times do I have to do that? How many times do I have to have forgiveness? Is there a limit? 70 times seven. Well, I think I've already got over that. 70,000 times seven. I've blown it. I'm that kind of guy. And shame says, I'm not worthy to be in your presence, Lord, away from me. I'm a sinful man. And what you need then is not forgiveness, but acceptance. Acceptance, divine acceptance in grace says, I know you're the kind of guy that does that kind of thing, but I want you on my team anyway. Now, that is just that's that's stratospheric. That change, you mean me? You mean you know that I'm that kind of guy? I know. I love you. You're on my team. Now, I think it's fascinating uh, that I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's something like the Bible mentions shame twice as often as it talks about guilt. And yet, how often do we talk about guilt in our preaching and talk about shame? I think it's something like guilt 98, shame 2. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. And even then, we don't really know what we're talking about. We just assume, well, it's just another type of guilt, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that that reminds me of uh, the garden. They were naked and unashamed. Right. Uh, and that that's that is fundamentally what changed in one of the things that fundamentally changed. Maybe the the fruit of the guilt was an ashamed relationship with each other and in the shame that led us into the bushes. And that is fundamental to what the gospel cures. It washes away our sins so that we uh, we uh, do not have to be ashamed uh, anymore. What a, right. what wonderful news. Um, oh, I think that's a such a helpful distinction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, such a helpful distinction between your uh, the bill has been paid at lunch, and that you don't have to pay the traffic ticket, and your mortgage has been paid. To I want to be with you when this is all over. I paid your debt, and I love you, yeah. uh, and not just I paid I your like debt. I did the you. right thing. See you later. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What a, a, a welcoming in back into the garden, uh, which so, is what yeah. I'm preaching through Revelation right now. Isn't that what Revelation is? Making a way for you to come back in the garden unashamed, God dwelling with man forever. What a wonderful news. Uh, praise God. Um, well, brother, I want to ask you kind of one last question. Let's say uh, you're a pastor and somehow you've scathed through COVID and you are running through the fields of dandelions and the birds are singing and the sky is blue and you're preaching your best sermons and the church has even grown and your budget has grown uh, through COVID. Uh, I know such a church and uh, I find it difficult okay. to rejoice with them on some days. <laughs> yeah, no. no, let's just say that this is not you today, um, but it could be in three years. It could be in five years. Uh, what would you say to someone who's listening to this and going, oh, this, these guys, they, wow, 
thank God that's not me. Uh, what would you say to someone who this may be in their near future and they don't know it? Um, how should we kind of think forward if we're doing well, but we might come to a hard place? What can we do right now? I hear what it's going to be for each one of us. We don't know what it's going to be for each one of us. But it's, it's guaranteed that we will suffer. It's guaranteed. Hmm. Um, and ministry will bring suffering. That is guaranteed. Hmm. Um, I don't think ministry that's faithful is simply possible. Not, and, and it could simply just be the sort of profound attachments and affection and love for people that you, you build that, that gets dashed or disappointed or um, they move away or even... Uh, they go to glory. We will grieve. It's guaranteed. Um, and I don't know what the specifics. It may be mental illness, but not everybody. But they say one in four. I don't know. I sometimes wonder, actually, if um, believers, and particularly those in ministry, are probably more likely to have mental challenges, mental health challenges. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me because of the way that we, uh, if we're doing it right, we are making ourselves at the disposal of others um and that means we're going to get kicked in the teeth um it's no surprise that's why the lord jesus in gethsemane battled mental illness i would argue certainly deep deep psychological um affliction um so it's guaranteed so then the issue is not um um if but when and so therefore um I think in the end, we just got to get to know God and be with him. And I'm, I'm a fine one to talk about this. I'm rubbish at this. Um, I'm sometimes scared to be alone with God because of what he's going to ask of me next. Um, I was thinking about that just this morning. I, 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 I'm almost nervous of being alone with him. I'd much rather fill my day with other things that make me feel occupied and busy and, and so on. Um, but... But actually, if we honestly believe that we preach and therefore live a theology of the cross rather than the theology of glory, then for the glory set before us, we must endure the shame and the hardship and the suffering. So I think um, I would be amazed if people listening to this, if they're in ministry, even for six months or five minutes, um, don't recognize the reality of this. Um, so that, you know, I suspect there's a kind of trade descriptions issue when some people go into ministry and then they, they give up after a, three years or whatever because it's hard. It's like, well, what were you expecting? Now, it may be that because it's super hard for some people, they do need to give up, and that's not necessarily failure. It probably isn't failure right. at all. It's, um, so I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying um, you go in with your eyes open and then take up your cross. I mean, I've got nothing more glamorous or glorious than that. Um, and if, if that's news to you, then there's some big thinking you need to do. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that wondering, is this fantasy? <laughs> that some pastor could be doing that because it's Nathan's church. The, That's how they're. <laughs> no, no, no. There's a when he's on a vacation. Pastor. Yes. 
I'm actually in Bermuda right now. Um, the pastor in town that I have in mind, you know, reported our church has actually had our best financial year during COVID. We've taken in new members and we've baptized people during COVID, which is not the normal narrative in our region, at least. And I remember thinking and feeling uh, just inferior. It's like, what am I doing wrong? What what opportunity am I not taking advantage of? Mm. He came to our next pastor's meeting and his tone was, I'm tired. Mm. I'm just tired. Mm. And I was so thankful to see that what what I think is worth glad praise. he was tired, weren't you? <laughs> uh, I really was. I was so encouraged. And I, I really am thankful Misery loves company, you know? for his church and the baptisms. And I rejoice with that. Uh, but on a personal level, I was like, it's so good to hear uh, that kind of uh, facade come off. Not that not that he ever I think tried to present that, but that, uh, there was, there was a connection. So, well, listen, brother, um, helping us find language, helping us have some things that we can, uh, you know, on the cliff, so to speak, some, some footholds, some places to grab a hold of and understand ourselves, understand how God's word can be, uh, helpful, especially for anyone who's maybe thinking through this for the first time. Um, uh, or, or someone who has read through some academic books about depression and even some biblical counsel books about depression, uh, finding a, a change with this discussion in this book to find uh, not someone to come talk to you like Job's friends, uh, but someone to come put their arm around your shoulder and, uh, and listen and, and talk with you. It's just been a wonderful help. It's been a wonderful encouragement for myself. And I know Michael... Uh, just to hear you talk openly with these things and, and just help us laugh about these things too. Um, because you, you recognize your own helplessness, uh, your rest in, in Christ, your rest in the spirit of God. Um, and so you can even laugh. Not everyone can laugh about it today. That's for sure. Um, yeah. but there will be, uh, days God willing, uh, where you'll be sustained and, uh, helped and, and brought back to a, a, a healthier place. And God may be, uh, doing more things, uh, in those low moments in your life uh, than he is in those high moments for sure. Uh, so we're grateful. Uh, God bless you and your ministry there. Hope to visit you one day on your side of the water. If not, we'd love to see you here in Texas uh, and get you some good barbecue. There's not there's not any good barbecue in Tuscaloosa. So you have to come to Austin for that. Just let you know. Is that is that right? He takes every moment that's he n- can to just take a shot at Alabama. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Um, but we'd love to have you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mark, I want to say too, just, um, from, from me and from my perspective, um, you know, just to somewhat reiterate what Nathan has just said, your book has been so helpful for me to just put a vocabulary, uh, and maybe even develop a vocabulary for depression and for, um, these sorts of struggles that were really difficult for me to express. Um, I've recommended the book to my wife and, and encouraged her to, to read it and then talk about it afterwards. And I, I hope I she's felt, bought her own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would never give her my copy. No, no, no. We're no, 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 no. You don't want to yeah, do that. Of course. <laughs> but, uh, I hate lending books. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, as soon as I saw the title, When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend, uh, to me, that was that resonated alone in just just the title um, and was so good at describing the exact the exact feeling. And so um, I'm grateful for that as well. And just what it what it's meant to me. So 
you know, to, to find a friend in the cave is truly valuable. So if, uh, you know, if that was your prayer and hope for the book, then it, it, you know, I may just be one person, but, uh, it certainly did that for me. I appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yep. Well, how can, uh, how can people keep up with you now and how, how can they, uh, look for work that you're doing and, and things that you're, you're working on now? Um, so I've got a blog, uh, so it's markmental.net, markmental all one word. Um, and I tweet, I, I left Facebook a few years ago, so that was just one step too far. Um, but, uh, I, I sort of post things and tweet things about what, what I'm up to. So that's probably the best place. Okay. Good deal. Well, Mark, again, it was good to talk to you and, um, thank uh, you very much for your time. for listening to the fire and bones podcast if you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you and most importantly share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links including our contact information feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the fire and bones podcast